and welcome to Soberholic Podcast. This show is designed to address topics that will encourage, equip, and inspire you to explore life's most difficult topics and overcome your biggest challenges. Today, your hosts, Roger and Jason, will share from their own experience how you can find hope and healing in recovery. Hello, everybody. It is fully summer now. It's been so hot lately, hasn't it? You know, it's not really even summer yet. It's fixing to get a lot worse. Man, I, I was uh, changing my thermostat to one of those fancy digital thermostats the other day. And it was one of those things where I was like, I think I know what I'm doing. You know, I like I think I can just read the directions and I'll be fine. Well, I hooked it up wrong. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. And I couldn't get the heat off. And so it was already hot outside, and then all of a sudden it's ninety five degrees in my house, <laughs> and I was on I was trying to like chat with the support people, and then they couldn't figure out what was wrong with it, and then I was just like, I will never do something like this again without adult su- supervision with me. So uh, it, it was hot. I finally got it to work, but it was like five a.m. You know, before the house actually cooled so down. So it was actually cooling down outside anyway. So it was that, cooler outside, <laughs> yeah. There was a safety net to catch you anyway. Yeah. Is it the kind that hooks into an app on your phone? Oh, you yeah. Just- oh, yeah. Now I'm, like, obsessively, you know, checking checking my temperature of my house all the time. Well, so. let me tell you one of the coolest things you can do to Dakota, and I've done this to Amanda <laughs> numerous times, is we got one of those put in when I had a new AC unit put in a few years back. And I've got the app on my phone to where you can adjust the temperature. And so anytime, I'm, not anytime, but sometimes when I'm away from home, you know, I'll just kind of remotely inch that heat on <laughs> up on those days. And, and cool. I'll, I'll get the uh, little emoji on my my phone when she texts me like uh, the steaming mad face <laughs> and she realizes what I've done. So there you go. Take that one with I'll you have next to time. Do, I'll have to do it before she listens to this podcast there. <laughs> Oh, it's great. You know, it only works a few times and it loses its fun, but yeah. it was fun the first few times. <laughs> but but I, I, I think today we're going to have a pretty cool show. Um, you know, every week we talk about things that we should do. And just like you reading um, or, or trying to install a thermostat without reading the instructions or following the instructions or getting lost in it all, there's just some things you shouldn't do. And I think recovery is the same way, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. There's definitely things that you should never do. Right. And, and those are the things I think that we can talk about today that um, maybe will help our listeners navigate this road to recovery, if you will, and hopefully avoid some of the pitfalls that even myself have, have faced in recovery. Yeah. I faced a lot of those pitfalls and just through trial and error. And, and a lot of people early on in recovery – you know, they don't have anybody that's that's walking them through it, that's guiding them through it. So you, it's just a trial and error thing. And that's, uh, you know, that's one of the things that we'll be talking about, too. Right. Well, let's dive off into it. One of the first things that we can um, really talk about, things that you shouldn't do in recovery, would be to just keep a closed mind. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so easy to have your mind closed when you first enter recovery because you think you know how to stay sober even though you can't or that's the way i that's the way i was when i first got into recovery and where when the 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 man in the long black robe got me into recovery the judge 
when he ordered me to go to meetings and stuff. I didn't know if it was him or Satan there for yeah. a minute. <laughs> uh, I, I was ordered to go to these meetings, and I showed up thinking I already knew everything, and then I just needed to go get my piece of paper signed, and, and then I'd be done. And, you know, I, I was really close-minded to the whole to the whole whole way of life you know i when i first got there just seeing all these people laughing and seeing you know seeing them carry on carry on and and be you know have some levity and and some humor about their recovery and stuff like that that was the part that really closed me off i was like what is funny like nothing about this is funny to me and i don't know how you can be in recovery and be happy and have any kind of joy or peace you know you're having to come to these meetings all the time i just didn't understand and so that closed me off you know from from the start and then just thinking that i was smart enough to figure out how to how to stay sober and i didn't need any of you you know well the first meeting i walked into um they had the steps on the wall and i I was just kind of glancing down those because i didn't really want to talk to nobody there and i was over there kind of by myself and i was just looking at the steps one of the first few times that I'd seen them, or maybe the first time I was ever willing to see them and process them, and I, I came to steps two and three where we started talking about God, and that closed me off right then and there because I just didn't want to have anything to do with God because I was so resentful towards God. And it really took some some other guys pouring into me and letting me see that God was not this picture of a, a a judge that just wanted to send me to hell because that's the view that I had for so long of God. And because of that closed mind, it was hard for me there in the beginning. And then they passed the basket around to collect money. Exactly. And you're like, wait a minute. Exactly. Church is not the only place they ask for money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, and it seemed a little cultish, you know, to me in the beginning because they ever, you know, there was – there's a there's a whole set of like recovery lingo, you know that every recovery language everybody was talking and I didn't know it and I felt like an outsider, you know, for for a little while and that really, you know, closed me off. And then the other thing that that kind of made me want to have a closed mind was I was I was looking at the whole thing as something that I could graduate from. Like, I'll work the steps, and then I'll be done with it, or I'll look at the steps on the wall, and I'll just, you know, I'll do one, and then I'll skip to, you know, to eight and nine, and then and then I'll be out of there. You know, I'll do it my way. I didn't want to do it the actual right way. You know, I wanted to, to kind of choose, I wanted to have it my way. I wanted to choose my own recovery plan. Well, evidently, that's something that we all face because whenever I went to recovery, it was kind of the same way. My goal, um, and maybe it just being task-oriented, I wanted to finish the steps. Let's get through 12 so that I can have this miraculous life that I've always wanted to live. But there's, there's... it's not so much where we get to, it's the journey that we're on. And that's what everybody was telling me, but I didn't want to see that. It was strictly what I wanted to see in things, and that was difficult for me, and it just it took me coming around even when I didn't want to be there in order to kind of break through that and be willing to have an open mind, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and that leads us into the, the second way, the second thing that you should never do in recovery, and that's look at the differences. 
Um, this was something I did from the very start. I, I came in there, I listened to somebody's story, and I was like, you know, I'll, I'm not as bad as they are. You know, I, that's not me. Or, you know, I when I showed up in the parking lot and I saw a few nice cars, and I didn't even have a car, my first, my first round of meetings, my mom was having to drive me to the meetings because I had wrecked all my cars. I didn't even have a car. It's funny now. It was not funny then. My hood was rolled up to where like, I'd <laughs> run underneath the house, so I had one, but it was pretty bad. You and hitting them houses. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway... You know, I, I, I didn't. I felt like I was in a different place. I, you know, they they there was a few nice cars in the parking lot. People, you know, were not fifty pounds underweight like I was, and I was like, how could they possibly understand? You know where where I'm coming from. What I didn't realize is they had been there, but they they had re, you know recovered a lot since then. And so I, I I looked for all the differences as soon as I walked in the door and as soon as I got in recovery. And I, I call it, I've heard it called, I stole this from somebody, I can't remember who, who it is, but I call it junkie pride. Junkie pride. Where you think that you had it worse than everybody else and nobody could possibly understand, you know, how bad, you know, you had it and how unique your situation is. I had a sponsor one time, you know, who realized that I was suffering from um, chronic uniqueness, and he, he took me out in the parking lot of the meeting, and there was a bunch of gravel out there, and he picked up one of the rocks, and he was like, you think you're so unique, and he threw it in the air, and he was like, go find yourself. It's kind of a weird analogy, but it it did kind of make sense to me at the time because what he was saying he's like you're not unique, you right. know. There's there's you know millions of other people who have been where you are and who have recovered. You know, on the flip side of the junkie pride is that when I the first time that I went to rehab because I've been there multiple times is when I went in um, at that point I I had just began doing some of the harder drugs and it was. Um, some experimental type stuff that I was doing in the beginning to see what those things were like. And, but I, I walked in and I heard all these other people sharing their stories. And I was like, you know, I just ain't done those things. I, I'm nowhere near as bad as these other people are. And I, that's how I began to see the differences that I'm better than these other people is what I would tell myself. And it, it was quick for me to, to, to learn, uh, well, I was told early on, I didn't learn it until later, that it just hadn't happened to me yet. And those were the things that began to happen in my life when I said I would never shoot up with a needle. Those were exactly where I ended up at. And my wife and I was just talking about this yet because there was one lady in meetings all the time that would say, you know, just remember you hadn't done that yet. And I was like, what do you mean? And, and I kind of knew it, but she would always say that yet means you're eligible too. Uh, I never heard that. Yeah, it was good, and that's true for me. It means that you know I'm not above whatever I think someone else has done has been a bad thing. And I think that could apply to anybody. You know, I think that is something even just for somebody who's listening to this uh, that's a Christian. You know, to 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 think that you'll never do a certain sin or a certain thing. You know, I almost feel like you're just loading the gun, you know, and, and especially when it comes to pride, you know, thinking that you're better than somebody else, you know, because you haven't done what 
what they have done. But I mean, it's clear in the Bible that, you know, God looks at all sin the same and that, you know, we, we were all just as dead in our transgressions as anybody else. And so, you know, there's there's no way that we can, you know, say I'll never do something because we're all capable of doing the most horrible things. Did you ever struggle with this? Because this is one of the things I saw differences. And, and I, this worked on me for years in recovery. But oftentimes, as we do in any recovery meetings, we hear testimonies of, of life change. And some of those could be much longer than I have in recovery or, or much shorter than I have in recovery. But whenever women would share their, share their story, I had a hard time staying engaged with them. Oh, yeah. And, because I, I did. I looked for the differences in it. I just I, I felt like I couldn't relate. But now I see that that's not true. Yeah, and and what Celebrate Recovery has really helped me with is, I mean, even before I was active in Celebrate Recovery, when I would hear, hear somebody's story, if it wasn't the same drug that I did, wasn't the same exact kind of line of story that I had, I would just kind of check out and I wouldn't listen what Celebrate Recovery helped me with since Celebrate Recovery incorporates all hurts, habits, and hangups and all kind of different types of addictions is it helped me, instead of looking for the differences, I try to look for the similarities now. Um, you know, if somebody's sharing about food addiction, you know, or somebody's, you know, sharing about um, abuse or grief, I try to look for where does my story you know, what parts of their story line up with my story? And, you know, somebody who was, you know, a food addict and they're talking about how they just felt hopeless and they had this hole and they were trying to fill it up with food. Well, I can I can certainly find the similarities in that with drugs. Like I was doing the same thing with, with just a different substance is all. Yeah, there's just pain in our lives that we're just trying to numb something with. and And I've seen that very same thing. And so it's cool to sit there and see that I'm not so unique that, you know, I guess if you look at us all collectively, we struggle with sin and we struggle with the idea of trying to find who we are in Christ. And because of that, there are a lot of similarities. Yeah. And that's what, if you're really trying to do this, don't look at the differences, look for the similarities. Oh, yeah. Well, the third thing that we have is just... You don't want to do it alone because as you started on when we started talking about this is it's easy to walk in and think that you have the answers to all of this. And and I did this for a while, even when I went into recovery, is I went in and people were saying, well, you need to work the steps. And in my head, I'm reading through the steps and I'm working the steps, if you will, um, by reading through them and go, okay, I did that one, did that one. Well, then I came to steps four and five and I'm like, I don't really know how to do this. And that's when I began searching out for a sponsor. When did you look for your sponsor? I I had been going to meetings maybe a couple months, and at this point in my life, just, I mean, I didn't even have a friend, you know, and I remember just seeing how much happier and how much more peace and serenity and all those things that everybody else in the meeting seemed to have, and after a couple months, I just kind of bought into you know, the whole thing. And I was like, you know, I heard somebody say, 
you know, we'll gladly refund your misery. You know, if you can try this thing out, and if it doesn't work, we'll we'll give you a refund on your misery. And I remember that kind of that line kind of got me because I was like, okay, maybe this might work. And so that's when I got a sponsor. I had not. I mean, I had read the steps, and I was like, you know, thought, well, maybe just reading them will do something, but it didn't. And so I, I sought out a sponsor and just, you know, started working the steps, and we started with one. But there there wasn't – I didn't try to work them by myself um, at, at any point. But, you know, having a, having a sponsor for four and five, I can't imagine going through that by yourself. I just don't even know how that would work. If you look at this same concept, like maybe even in business, if you were to start a new business um, in an industry you knew nothing about, you wouldn't walk in there and say, I've got this, just here's my $100,000 to start my business and I'm just going to wing it and make it work. You know, the idea would be that if you wanted to get into this new industry you knew nothing about and you were willing to put all your money into it, you would find someone who's already doing it and is successful at it. And you would go, okay, um, you know, you would approach the person and say, you know, could you give me some pointers and some tips on how I could do this and so I could have a, a successful business like yours? And you would follow the same plan, if you will, to do that. And so I think that's the same idea or concept that we see in recovery is we walk into this new way of life and we don't know how to do it. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we don't know how to do it. And we we look around the room and we find someone who is successful at staying sober. And for me early on, it was kind of the way they talked, what they were doing. And and even as you mentioned earlier, without mentioning, I would even look at what they're driving. If they were still driving a car with a rolled up hood on it, <laughs> yeah. maybe you're not so successful at staying sober. But if you're driving a, a car that doesn't have bullet holes and dings all over it, you know, maybe you've done something differently. And if you're now a productive member of society like I wasn't, then maybe I could follow you and I could ask you to to step into my life and and coach me on how to do this recovery thing. Yeah, and that and that's you know beyond sponsorship, just building a recovery network. Because um, you, your sponsor is not going to be the end all to all your problems. You know, your sponsor. You know, your I've had sponsors who, you know, they were great sponsors and working you through the twelve steps, but they may you know be morally lacking in one certain area in their life. And so, you know, I wouldn't ask them, not you, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about before in the past, but, you know, so, you know, when it comes to relationships or whatever, I wouldn't ask them, I'd ask somebody else, you know, your sponsor is just to guide you through the 12 steps. There can be other relationships that you develop in recovery that you can use, you know, for different things. And I think this is another area where, the 12 steps as a discipleship model is is glaringly obvious right here you know you need somebody in christianity to walk beside you and disciple you and to be there for you and develop in your your walk with christ yeah how many times have you looked around the church and we know that discipleship is is what Jesus even commanded to go and and baptize and make disciples we see that in matthew but do we have someone that we feel like is discipling us? If we if we put that person in our lives that we are willing to let 
pour into us? You know, are we willing to tell them what's going on in our lives? I don't think that that a lot of us in the church even have that. If you took the 12 steps out of this, just in our normal Christian walks, is that there? I don't know. I don't think it's as, as much as it should be. Right. And and to me, I'll, I'll look at the sponsor-sponsee relationship as a picture of what discipleship should look like, where it's one-on-one, intensive time together, um, you know, studying the scriptures and walking through different things and then having that person that you you can confess your sins to that can walk uh, beside you through difficult situations and and gray areas can help you you know to to seek god and to pray on what to do about different decisions it's just invaluable to have that person and I don't think the pastor is that person, right? You know, everybody goes, well, you know, I listen to my pastor. Well, but your pastor can't disciple a hundred people, right? Um, you know, whatever size your church is, uh, he can't disciple a hundred, fifty, or even a thousand. You know, so it takes the more. I don't know, someone who, who's just a little further ahead of you is really all it boils down to. He didn't have to be the pastor or hold a leadership role. It's just someone who has maybe walked a little longer in their walk with Christ or in their recovery and is willing to show you what they've done. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, whether it be a sponsor or collectively a group of people you've called into your life to help you with your recovery, the main thing is that you just don't walk in there with this arrogant, prideful attitude that I've got this and I'm going to do this. If it was that simple, then you would have already done that yourself and wouldn't have had the problem that you have now. Yeah, exactly. In our recovery. And that's just, you don't want to do it for someone else. Ooh, man, I did this. You know, they, they call it the, uh, what do they call it? The, the back. Uh, I got a back problem. I've never heard this. I don't know. <laughs> you do have a back problem. I've seen the way you walk today. I actually do have a back problem, but you know, you're trying to get people off your back. The monkey off your back? The mo- well, no, like your wife or whatever that's trying to get you to get help, and you want to get her at, off your back. <laughs> so you're no like, I have, what a, you're talking I have about. a back problem. Should we go drug test? <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. I think I just messed it all up. It's like I just told a joke and just missed the punchline. <laughs> but I, this is a, a mistake that, you know, I made. I was I was doing it for my family, you know, in the very beginning. I didn't really want recovery and sobriety for myself. Because at you know at the end of the day, I didn't respect myself or love myself enough to care about myself in that kind of way. I really just I felt bad for my family and what I was doing doing to my family, and you know I I thought well I'll just you know I'll get sober and I'll try to do this for them. The problem is it wasn't enough. That wasn't enough for me. If you look at someone who's in drug addiction, at least I, I know I can speak to to this addiction. If you're not in drug addiction, you'd go, why in the world would someone continue to inflict so much damage and harm into their life, not only their life, but our life as a family, if you're a family member? And speaking from the point, the the guy who was in the addiction, a large part of it, I didn't want help. I knew in my head that it would make sense to get recovery and to do better, but I didn't want to. I, I, I didn't want to face reality is what it boiled down to because I knew that there was responsibility that would come with that, and I just didn't want to 
I didn't want to own up to that. And so I stayed in this addicted cycle of just pain and misery, part of which is because I knew what to expect there. I was comfortable in my pain. Yeah. And so my parents would say, look, you need to get sober. Yeah, I probably do. You're right. The courts would say, look, you need to get you need to get better. You're going to prison. You're, yeah, you're probably right. If I make it in here again, I'm going to go to prison. But I knew that they wouldn't catch me the next time, right? Oh, yeah. That was what I thought. That's what I told myself. And, and everybody, there was a reason why I needed to get better. I need to get better for my kids. And this is the thing I hear so many oh, times. Yeah. I'm like rolling my eyes right now as I'm talking to you because parents talk to me all the time. I need you to help my kids. I can't help your kids. Um, I can't help your kids if they don't want help. And I will gladly sit down and talk to anyone who's willing to talk to me, but I can't fix them. I, I, I can't turn water into wine. I can't do any other things other than to tell them what happened in my life and want and pray for them with all of my heart. But ultimately, they have to want it for themselves and this is the the hardest part to deal with in recovery, I believe, especially if you're watching someone walk into recovery, because I've dealt with so many sponsees who come in with something on their back. Back problem. Yeah, back problem. And wanting to get it off. But And sometimes they do. Yeah. And they get to some level of stability and sobriety, but then it, but then eventually it fades. They can shake it off for a minute, but then it gets back on there. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, this is probably one of the hardest parts for somebody who's not been in addiction to understand. They, they will think and even say things. I'm sure you've had this said to you. Well, if you love me, you'll get sober. Or if you love your daughter, or if you love your wife, you know, you'll get sober. But to the addict and, and to the, the person struggling with the addiction, that that's something that just doesn't compute because the addiction just totally enslaves the person so totally that they don't even, that doesn't even reach them. Well, know? there's like extreme acts of selfishness in addiction. And so if you would have said, if you love me, then just stop. I would have told you, I love you, but if you don't like it, then just don't have nothing to do with me. Yeah. You know, because it's about me. It ain't about what I'm doing to you. Right. And I remember for so long when people were trying to help me and trying to get me to quit, I remember just thinking, if everybody would just leave me alone, I'd be okay. Well, then... Everybody finally left me alone, and then I was like, "Wait a minute! No, no I didn't really mean that." Why don't anybody love me? Yeah, <laughs> I can remember being there all alone, like everybody, because I had stole everybody's wallet from them. There wasn't nothing else left to steal, and I was all alone. And there I was, you know, and and I used that poor pitiful me to go do more drugs. Oh yeah, and I think a lot of people can identify with. You know, you you want some you want people to speak into your life, but then at at some point, if you're not willing to make the changes that you know that those people are trying to help you to make, you eventually push them away, and then you know you're in a whole lot worse worse place. So our last thing that I think that we could hit, and I'm sure there's more, but these were the ones I've seen a lot of. 
uh, things that you just shouldn't do while you're in recovery. And you just don't want to wait until the time's right. Because there's just never a right time to get sober. And what I mean is like, oh, well, I'm going to wait till I get some money saved up so my wife will be okay when I go into recovery. I'm going to wait for, you know, my kids to, to get out of school. I'm going to wait for, you know, this, this event to happen in my life. And it just never happens that way. If you really cared about your wife and wanted to make sure she had enough money, you wouldn't have been smoking all the money in the bath pipe. Right. You know, that's, yeah. that's the way you can look at that. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been in, you know, several re- residential rehabs, and and you hear the same lines in there when somebody who, who comes in new, you know, they'll always be like, well, you know, I don't know if I can go six months without seeing my kids. And I always said, I would, I remember saying to this one guy, how much have you really been seeing your kids when you're out there doing drugs? Well, I mean, I'm like, exactly. You weren't seeing them. You know, well, I don't know if I can go six months without making some money. And I'm like, well, what were you doing with all your money? You know, they're trying to excuse themselves out of there thinking that, well, they needed to take care of this and take care of this before they got sober. When the bottom line is the the time to get sober is always now. You know, that's the best time. Because if you wait for the pain to go away, then you'll be waiting a long time. If you really want to get sober, then you've got to say, I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to do it for me, and I'm ready to do it now. And my guess is if we have anybody listening who maybe is dealing with someone who's struggling in addiction right now, they've heard these excuses already. I I have not yet met an addict who has not thrown these excuses around, like just, I can't do it right now, or I don't have enough money to go do it. Money's always a a revolving factor around it. And the other things is that, you know, even like you mentioned with the kids, and that boils down to love. Oh, I love my kids. Well, if you loved your kids, then you would be present with them. You know, you can't do drugs and say, I'm present with my children. Those don't compute well with one another. And I think even with other addictions, this can be even harder. You know, food addiction or codependency, you don't have the type of consequences that you have with drug drug addiction where you're getting arrested and all you don't you don't have those legal type consequences that can really push things to a head to to motivate you to get help you know with some of the other addictions you know they're 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 more subtle and you can just kick the can down the road indefinitely because you're looking for number two reason the you know back to look at uh, look at the differences yeah oh well mine's not as bad as that yeah and you and that's you know leads you down this this long journey of just pain and misery yeah so let's recap here are the five things that you shouldn't do in recovery you shouldn't keep a closed mind you shouldn't look for the differences you shouldn't do it alone you shouldn't do it for someone else, and you shouldn't wait for the, the right time. Now, those are a kind of a, a long list of things, but those are the things that are going to help anyone progress in their road to recovery. Because the road to recovery is just full of landmines, and you're, you know, you're nev- inevitably going to hit one of them, but you know, we think if you avoid some of these that you'll be in a, a lot better place and it's about the journey not the destination exactly and so don't worry about trying to get to the end because 
you're not going to get to the end. This is um, the work that you'll continuously do. And um, it's even kind of like what we talk about with Jesus. It's not going to be perfected here. And so we continue to strive to be better here, and then we become perfect when we find Jesus or we're with Jesus. Amen. And so that wraps up another show, man. So um, I'm Roger. I'm Jason. And we're out of here. Thanks for listening to Soberholic with Roger and Jason. If you like the show and want to know more, check out SoberholicPodcast.com. Please remember to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next week, Soberholics.